Romans chapter 6 is what I'm going to be preaching from, or at least alluding to, in just a very short message as we consider what baptism is, what we're celebrating, and why we're here. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Word of God says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that You might have thought that was me humming that high note. It, it, it was not. Anyway, uh, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, so that the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Father in heaven, we come before you today excited, as always, to be together with other believers to celebrate what you have done and are doing in our lives. But today in particular, as we celebrate specifically what you're doing and have done in the lives of Nick and Naomi, we are excited to baptize them and to celebrate the gospel in action, the gospel in reality in their lives, that they who were once slaves to sin are now slaves to righteousness and bought with a price and adopted into your family. But Lord, for now, we ask that you would bless our time in your word and that this would be glorifying to you and edifying to us as we celebrate the truths that are contained within it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm just curious by a show of hands, last service was like several people, but how many of you have ever been to a, you've been part of a studio audience uh, for the recording of a TV show? Raise your hand if that's been a thing for you. Yeah, more than I expected. I thought maybe there'd just be like two people, but several of you have. Now, uh, usually if you're part of a studio audience in a TV show, there is a certain look or feel that the producers of that show are going for. And so it is 100% not about you as the audience, but what kind of look or feel they're going for. And usually they'll have some sort of a sign that tells you what you need to do as part of the audience because they're going for that look 
or feel. And so the sign will say applause or something like that because they want to get that energetic feel, that energetic look for the show. And if they don't get the applause that they want, they will redo it because they're not super concerned about your comfort, but they're super concerned about the look and the feel of the show. In fact, sometimes, most times actually, somebody will come out and kind of prep the audience before they record anything, say, all right, how many, how, how are we all doing? Everyone goes, ah! And then they start talking about what they're going to be asking you to do throughout the show. Listen, we're going to need a lot of energy over here. We're going to need you to do this. We're going to need you to do that. All right? All right, cool. Then they do that, and they kind of prep you for that. It's part of the TV show. Now, I've been baptizing people for almost 20 years now, and never once, ever, 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 did I instruct the congregation as to how they should respond to a baptism. Nor did I ever come before them and say, all right, listen, we're about to start the service here. How are you guys doing today? Hey, then start telling you what I think would be really cool for you to do. It's like, now listen, we're going to be baptizing Nick. Now, he's a really great guy, but I think he'll feel really good if you give him a good a lot of energy. Like, that's not a thing. That's not a thing I do. That's not a thing I've ever known any pastor to do. Not once, but yet every time, people cheer. Every time. And so today... In a very short message, just before we baptize Nick, I want to look at why we do that. The title of the message is simple, why we cheer. That's it, why we cheer. Now, for those of us who are part of this church family, I hope it's a helpful reminder of why we do what we do, uh, both in baptism, but then also in our response. Why do we Cheer. My last church actually not only did people cheer, but they all sang the chorus of a hymn. After every person was baptized, throughout the entire time that I was there, they all sang the chorus of a hymn. Why do we respond in this way? So that's what we're going to be focused on today. Uh, and it's a reminder for us who are part of Grace Fellowship, like, why do we do what we do? But particularly if you're not a part of our church family, if you're not, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And if you might be visiting with us because you're a friend of Nick's or visiting with us because you're visiting with somebody else or visiting with us because you lost a bet or I don't know why you're here, but I'm glad you're here. But particularly if you're not a Christian, I'm especially glad you're here and I want to go out of my way to let you know why we do what we do. And that's not because I think that you're high maintenance or anything if you're a guest or if you're not a Christian. I don't think you're leaning over right now going, I didn't know there'd be clapping. You didn't tell me. I don't think that insults you. I don't think you needed a heads up, but I want you to understand why we do what we do. So again, the title of the message, Why We Cheer. Now, as I said earlier, this is Baptism Sunday, a day we set aside to outwardly celebrate, outwardly, publicly, visibly celebrate and illustrate an inward reality in someone's life. Throughout the scriptures, God is kind enough to use pictures to help us understand and remember key, deep, biblical truths. In fact, probably if you think of some of the best lessons you've ever been taught, some of the best teachings that you've ever been taught that have been most memorable, it probably involves some sort of narrative or effective illustration. The teacher, the speaker probably painted some sort of a picture in your mind's eye that you can forever connect the dots from this truth and reality to that picture or that lesson. Jesus does this in his ministry, I mean, all throughout his ministry, through the use of parables. He tells a story to illustrate an important point. You might forget, like so fast, a theological treatise regarding compassion, but you don't soon forget the parable of the Good Samaritan. When I forget, and I do, 
how God and thinks and feels about me as a wayward sinner. I can remember the parable of the prodigal son. How the father ran towards the son while he was still a long way off. How he gave him a ring and put a robe of honor on him and threw a party and killed the fatted calf for the son that came home seeking forgiveness. These are powerful pictures that are painted for us throughout the scriptures. Stories are powerful. Pictures are powerful. And so that is at least part of the reason we're doing what we're doing today as we celebrate what Christ has done in saving Two particular individuals today, Naomi Sprague and Nick Ryle. That's part of the reason we're doing what we're doing. Now, the text I read earlier today was from Romans chapter 6. If you look at uh, verses 3 and 4, it speaks of the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Let's look at that again. Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, baptism is a picture, but it's not just a picture of what Christ did over 2,000 years ago for sinners like you and like me. It's a picture of a reality that is true for the person being baptized. They're coming forward wanting to share outwardly this inward reality that is true and to publicly profess what they believe. Now, in Romans 6, we've covered this before, but it's just something that I want to repeat. Paul isn't talking about baptism. He's not. You say, I'm so sure he is because I see the word. I heard you read it before. In fact, I heard you read it three times in the span of 11 verses. So I'm fairly certain he's talking about baptism. And he is kind of, but let me see if I can explain it to you. You see, the word there translated baptism, and it's not a bad translation, not an incorrect translation, it's not a textual variance, this is not me saying, you can't really trust your Bible if you don't read it in Greek, that's why you need to come back. No, not saying that at all. But the word there, that word, that Greek word baptizo, means this, it means the introduction or placing of a person or thing into a new environment that will forever alter its condition to its previous environment. So it is a placing of a person or thing into a new environment, into union with something else so as to forever alter its condition or relationship to its previous environment. And so let's talk about from the lesser to the greater, right? We'll just talk about baptism. Someone's going to enter the baptismal tank and they're going to be dry. By the end of the baptism, if all goes well, they will be wet. This alters their, how they feel about the environment around them. They'll probably feel a different temperature. They'll probably feel a little chilly. They'll certainly feel very wet. They will look very different to you and me. So they are entered into something that will alter their reality into the environment into which they live, right? But when you're baptized into Christ, so put this thing aside, put the water aside, when you have been immersed into the reality of the gospel, but when God's love and faith has totally altered your frame of mind and your heart, it forever changes the way you interact with the environment in which you live. That's, so that's what I mean. The picture that we see of just like dry to wet is depicting a way different reality of what goes on inside the life of a believer. And so when Paul says in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That means for all of us who have been just immersed into Christ Jesus, immersed into the truth of the gospel, 
baptized into his death, for those of us who have been immersed into the reality of what Jesus accomplished through his death, we will also be immersed and baptized into new life. And so what's being spoken about here is not like water baptism. What's being spoken about here is the reality, the spiritual reality that is true for Nick and for Naomi and for all who believe in Jesus. And it's important for us to know that nothing outlasts the saving grace of God through Christ Jesus. Nothing. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus in Matthew 6 in Sermon on the Mount says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so, Nick, God's saving grace has met you, has changed you, has given you the, the hope of heaven that moth and rust can't destroy. And that's what we're celebrating. It's done. It's finished. You don't need to reapply. Uh, you don't need to lather, rinse, repeat. You don't need to maintain it. It's rooted in a reality that you had nothing to do with beforehand, which means you can't break it going forward. It's rooted in what Christ has done. His work is finished. It's paid in full, once and for all, and that is what we celebrate for you today. It's a picture modeled to us by Christ himself and given to us that we might remember who we are, who he is, what he's done, and why that's great. So baptism is a powerful picture of what Jesus did for sinners like you, like me, like Nick, like Naomi. We're reminded that Jesus died. But now if you really think about it, there's nothing unique about the fact that Jesus died. In fact, as you leave church today, if you just turn your head to the right, you'll see Evergreen Cemetery, and you'll quickly be reminded that Jesus is far from the only person on God's green earth to have ever died. Right? The death rate is not increasing. It is one apiece. Everybody dies. It's just a matter of when. There's nothing unique about the fact that Jesus died. But Jesus' death was different from yours or mine because his death was, here's the big word of the day, propitiatory. You say, oh, the pastor's showing off. Not really. It's in your Bible. So turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, because I want to explain to you what this means, or at least show you one instance of where it is in the scriptures. 1 John chapter 2, uh, look at verses 1 and five, one and 2 we're going to look at. 1 John chapter 2, not the gospel of John, but the little book of John toward the back of your Bible. 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the, there it is, what does it say? Propitiation, I'll say it for us, for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, a dictionary definition of propitiation is just this. The act of gaining or regaining the favor of someone. The act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone. Okay, and so when 
the word of God says that he is the, verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Here's what that means. That when Jesus died on the cross, he regained for you and for me, if we believe, the forgiveness of sins. He regained the good favor that we would have before God the Father. There are in the Bible seven sayings of Jesus recorded uh, when he was on the cross. He might have said more, there's just, but there's seven that we have in the Bible. One of the things he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, everything that Jesus says is key and important, right? But this in particular is something worth thinking about. And we're not going to look at it today, but you have to understand that Jesus enjoyed perfect union, a perfect relationship with his heavenly father. Jesus had a total of zero daddy issues, okay? He had perfect relationship with, with God the Father, perfect relationship. God the Father had a perfect relationship with God the Son. They were never at odds with each other. It was never awkward between them. It was never weird. He was never, they've never been angry at each other ever in their entire lives or, or in their entire existence. They have no lives. And especially during Jesus' earthly life when he's fully God and fully man. Not 50-50, he's 100-100. I know it doesn't add up, but he's not held back by math. He's fully God, he's fully man. 100% God, 100% man. He never experienced the anger of God. In fact, throughout all of his ministry, he never referred to God as God, except when he's on the cross. He always refers to him as his heavenly father. But as he's hanging on the cross, everything changes, right? And he says, my God, not dad, not my heavenly father, not daddy, not pop. No, 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 no. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is experiencing on that cross something he has never experienced before, ever. And that is the anger of God, the wrath of God. His father is angry. And the question is, why? Well, I want you to turn to one more passage, and that is Psalm 7. The book of Psalms, uh, number 7, Psalm 7. Because there's a great picture here. It's disturbing, but it's great. It puts a picture in your mind's eye. Psalm 7, beginning in verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Right? He feels anger every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So verse 11 tells us God's an, a righteous judge, so he's right to be angry. He's angry with the wicked every day. And so here we have this picture painted. Look at verse 12. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Okay, so he's got an arrow, he's got a bow, and he's put that arrow in, and he's bent and readied his bow, which he only ever does to shoot, right? Nobody, bent, he bends and readies his bow. He's not trying it out. He's not testing it out. He's not seeing what it feels like. He has bent and readied his bow for what? 
preparing for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And so back to the cross. God is ticked like fighting mad because of sin. And he has his bow ready, right? More than ready. He's ready. He's prepared to fire because he's ticked. The wages of sin is death. He, creation owes him a death, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so he has readied his bow. He is ready to fire it at sinners like you and me. And Jesus steps in and says, I'll take the hit for them. And God says, I accept. And so instead of you and me, if you're a believer, instead of Nick, instead of Naomi experiencing the wrath of God, Jesus hangs on a cross and experiences the white hot anger of the wrath of God that is the equivalent to an eternity in hell for everyone who would believe. And Jesus says, so this is different. This feels really different. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I never want to make light of the physical pain and agony that Jesus felt. Ever. Here's the thing. If we did to someone else's body what was done to Jesus' body, they would essentially feel the same thing physically, right? Like that's just common sense. But what nobody can depict, what the passion just can't depict in a movie, is what it is like to be on the receiving end of the white, hot, flaming anger of God as he pours it out onto his son so that believers and sinners like you and like me might receive none of it. What a powerful picture painted for us in the Psalms, right? Angry with the wicked, having bent and readied his bow. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are wicked, and since all are wicked, all are the recipients of God's anger, and rightfully so. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. It's right for him to be angry at sin, but Jesus is that propitiation, right, that substitute. He absorbs the wrath that is headed towards sinners like you and like me so that we might experience none of it. And so in Romans chapter 6, when Paul says, just as we've been baptized into Christ's death, that means we have been immersed into the reality of Christ's death, the wrath that was poured out on Christ, it's the same as if it's poured out on us in God's eyes. And just as Christ died, just as he rose, we will also rise. Buried with Christ's death, raised to walk in newness of life. Why do we cheer? I'm sure part of why we cheer is we want to encourage the person being baptized. 
We're excited for them. We're excited for you. It's, that's, there's no need to apologize for that. But we cheer because of the reality that's being depicted, that as someone goes into the water and comes out of the water, we're reminded that just like they look different as they come out, that their life will look different because they've been saved. And we're reminded that even though they die, they will still live. And that Jesus is the only one who can change death from a dead end to a bridge from this life to eternal life. That's why we cheer. And that's why we cheer when we cheer. Did you ever notice that? Like, we don't cheer as the person, like, gets into the baptistry. That's like, like, why would we cheer? No offense, but why would we cheer? Like, that's not a big deal. Like, we don't cheer as someone goes down into the water. We cheer as they come out of the water because of what it depicts. It depicts somebody walking in newness of life and reminding us that even though they will go down in death, because how many, everybody dies, right? They will walk in newness of life. For them, death is the bridge from the present life to eternal life. It's not an end. And so we're excited about that, and that's why we cheer. That's why we cheer when we cheer. Just follow me at the... I thought a lot about this, but I think it's worth doing. Follow me. This might be a little morbid, but I think it's worth going there. So kind of buckle up. Uh, We cheer as the person comes out of the water, right? Hypothetically speaking. What if they didn't come out? Just for a minute, like it's funny, you giggle. You giggle because it's awkward, like, right? Like that was that kind of giggle. Like, ha, 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 ha. He's doing a drowning illustration just before baptism. Love this guy. Can we just go there just for, just for a minute? Like, can you imagine? Just imagine. The person goes down into the water and doesn't come back up. And there's a word for that that's called drowning. Dying. How would you feel? How, how terrible would, seriously, like how terrible would that be if someone were to just die under the water? And it's terrible because we celebrate them coming out, right? We celebrate the gift of eternal life that they have. But it would be a horrible thing if somebody were to just go down and not come back up. Everybody goes down. Everybody dies. Only those with Christ come back up. And so it's horrible, horrific, terrible when somebody dies without Christ, right? And so that awkward, ooh, that would be awkward. That's what it's like when, if someone dies without Christ, it's just, they just go down. That's it. There's nothing to celebrate. 
And so it begs the question, what about you? Everybody goes down. Everyone dies. Cemetery reminds us of that. We all know that. Everybody dies. Will you come back up? I know, like, for sure you'll go down because everybody dies. Will you come back up? Or is your death just death? Where you then begin to experience the wrath of God instead of the joy of heaven. Not do you have what it takes, but have you said, I really believe that God shot his fiery arrow of wrath at Jesus on my behalf. And God the Father is satisfied in the death of Jesus the Son and raised him on the third day. I so believe that that is true. I'm putting all of my trust in that. That's why I'm going to heaven. Because he shot that arrow into Jesus. Jesus received it, received the wrath of God, the punishment that was due to all sinners. And I believe that it was sufficient for my salvation. And I believe because Jesus went down, he went down on my behalf, and because Jesus came up and walked again, I too will walk. That's the question for us to consider, each and every one of us. And that's why we cheer when we cheer. We cheer not because someone's going down. Everybody goes down. But we cheer because something new and great has happened because of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like you and me. And we've been given eternal life. That's why we baptize That's why we celebrate. That's why it's public. And that's why we cheer. So let's pray. And let's sing. And let's baptize. And let's cheer. Father, we come before you excited for the realities that were just spoken of. Excited for what you've done in our lives. Lord, so many people here know you and love you. So many people have had their lives changed by you. And today we specifically celebrate what you've done for Naomi and Nick. And we pray, Lord, that this baptism would be a great celebration of the truth that salvation has come to Nick And a reminder to those of us who know you and love you that salvation has come to us. But oh God in heaven, for your glory, uh, for your glory, would you use your word, this picture that you've created in baptism, not our idea, yours, it's all about you. For your glory, Lord, would you today cause your word, cause the testimony of a saved one, cause this picture of baptism right in front of us to cause hearts to change. Lord, would you use this as a time to call people out of darkness into your marvelous light? Would this be a day 
that someone showed up at church because it's Sunday and that's what they do. Or they showed up at church because Nick's getting baptized and they're friends. They figured they would come because it's a happy thing. Would you use this, Lord, as a means by which people would be saved, their lives forever changed as they put their faith and trust in you? Knowing that you've readied your bow, knowing that you've bent it, Lord, would they say, I think Jesus, I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose again and because of that, I'm saved. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.